So as we move into Titus, we're going to try and get through all of chapter 1 uh, this evening. It's not, you know, it's only 16 verses, so it should be doable. And the title is A Church in Order. God is a God of order. That's so clear as we look at creation and we see that he ordered things. It's not haphazard. It's not chaos. There is a beauty to the order with which he has put this world together. And it's that order, actually, that allows science to even exist, right? Because if there was no order, if it was only chaos, you cannot make sense of chaos. But because it's so wonderfully ordered and predictable and put together and hung in such a beautiful way, um, it can be studied and, and we can learn how the Lord uh, put this place together and how things function. And we have so many benefits that have come from that understanding that if there was a creator, it would have been an orderly thing. And we can look around and see that. Therefore, men and women sought to understand. And as they understand God's order, we can have so many blessings. And it would be no, we should expect no different for the church. The church isn't to be chaotic. As a matter of fact, Paul would say, let all things be done decently and in order. That, that's his, his instruction to a church that was kind of running off into the chaos realm a little bit, the church at Corinth. He said, hey, let all things be done decently and in order. And it's kind of, even that phrase is kind of funny because you can, there's usually two camps. There's the let all things be done, forget the decency and order. And then there's a camp that says, forget all things, it's only decency and order. But really, we need to let all things be done decently and in order. And the word of God gives us guidance for what all things are, and it gives us guidance for what order is. So, um, you know, you take the time, you study it, and you find out. But Paul is uh, going to be writing somebody that he has been connected with in ministry for quite some time. Paul's writing towards the end of his life. Um, it doesn't say what date he wrote it, but we believe that he wrote it around 63 AD. That's kind of a, a, a conservative view of when he wrote this. Titus was a Gentile convert. He served as a traveling companion with Paul. He, you can probably read Titus's name more in the uh, letters to the Corinthians because he was kind of the guy going back and forth and um, you know, ministering to them than probably anywhere else in the New Testament. He was a willing servant to go on all kinds of assignments to help out. Um, Paul first mentions him in Galatians, that's the first mention of Titus, as one who accompanied himself and Barnabas in their travel to Jerusalem, where the church concluded that Gentiles do not need to be circumcised. So that's the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. You won't read of him at all in the book of Acts, but Galatians tells us that they went there, and we know what took place in the book of Acts. And so um, as they were uh, coming to decide, you know, what do Gentiles have to do? They have to be circumcised. Paul says, let's go, Barnabas and Titus, you're coming too. You can almost hear the objection. Are you sure it's a good idea for me to come to that meeting? Maybe we should wait to see what the outcome is before I end up going over and spending time um, at the Jerusalem council where they decide what they're going to do with guys like me. But he went. And um, there's no mention of him, but we do know from Galatians that he traveled with Paul there. Now, the last mention of Titus is uh, that in 2 Timothy, where he had gone off to uh, Dalmatia, or we would call it Serbia, uh, today, and had done ministry there. Church tradition states that Titus ends up returning to the island of Crete, which we're going to find out that's where he was when the book of Titus was written. Um, and that he ends up becoming um, a beloved overseer, bishop, there on the island of Crete in his last days. So, again, most mention is going to be found in Corinthians. Uh, this is Paul's third letter known as a pastoral epistle. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. That's why they're grouped together in our Bible the way they are. These are known as the pastoral epistles, writing to those that are trying to set order and instruction and dealing with trouble um, inside of the church. And so he writes this third one, first to go to Timothy, and now this one is going to um, Titus, again, that beloved companion of his. Um, there were churches on the island of Crete that had some false teachers and some troublemakers and they're harassing the church. And so Paul sends 
Titus back to this place. Now what we're going to learn is that this was a tough ministry assignment. It's, you know, Paul's, we'll see it before we're over, so I don't want to talk about it too much right now. But it was a really tough ministry assignment. Just like when he went to Corinth, a tough ministry assignment. Just like when he joined him going to Jerusalem when the council was going to get together. So I think we learned something about Titus from that. And that is that this guy was hardy. This guy was ready for the task. He didn't look and say, but this is going to be hard. He said, all right, I'll go. Fine, if this is where you want me to go, then I am glad to go there. And so he goes and, and is going to set in place, is going to ordain elders at these churches that they might be able to um, you know, deal with these false teachers going on and they wouldn't always have to have somebody coming in to fix it, but they could actually um, take care of themselves. Um, uh, this island, Crete, it's in the Mediterranean uh, it's 140 miles long, 35 miles wide. It's a very uh, mountainous island, and it is um, some hundred cities is what they think would have been on the island around this time. So with that as our introduction, let's go into um, the text itself and get a, uh, we'll, we'll just read through um, the opening greeting, which is the first four verses, which is one of the longest greetings in the New Testament. It's not the longest but it's one of the longest. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began but has in due times manifested his word through preaching which, is committed, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So he writes to him. There's a lot that's so familiar in these greetings, but let's just take time to, to pick out a few things. And the, right off the bat, Paul, we learn about his mindset. What is the mindset that this, that Pastor Paul had that he's going to try and pass on? And the first thing he says, I'm a bondservant of God. I'm a bondservant. I'm a servant. The word is doulos here. That is one who's devoted to the purposes and the will of another to the disregard of their own interests. That's what a slave is. That's what a bondservant is. And Paul says, I am a bondservant of God. It's not about what I want or what I want to do. It's about what the Lord wants. He understands this when he writes to the Corinthians in two different places in 1 Corinthians. The first one is chapter 6, verse 20. You are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. They're not yours. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 23. You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. You're a slave of the Lord. And Paul understands this, and he's happy to call himself a slave of God. I am happy to carry out the wishes and the will and the mission that God has given to me. He wasn't worried about whether or not this fit his vision of what he was going to do with his life. That had all been settled on the road to Damascus. He was doing his own thing. He was persecuting the church. He thought he was being zealous for God, but he actually was persecuting the Lord himself, so Jesus says, as Paul persecuted the church, because we are, we are the body of Christ. So as the body of Christ was persecuted, the Lord meets him on the road and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And at that moment, he says, listen, I want you to be a follower of mine. You're going to be a chosen vessel of mine, but you're going to suffer many things for declaring and fulfilling this mission. And Paul says, I'm, I'm signing up. If you're the Messiah, I've got it all wrong, but I'll, I'm willing to do it now. And indeed, he was willing to follow the Lord and to walk in these things. But he understood that he was not his, his own, that he had become a person that had died to himself. It is such a good thing to remember that we are dead to our own purposes, to our own call, to our own ideals, ideas of how we want life to go. I have died to the old man. I take up the cross and I deny myself and I follow the Lord. And when you, when you have that mindset that you are dead, it is very easy to now follow the Lord 
and the things that he's called you to do. So first aspect of his mindset is that he was a servant. The next thing is that he is an apostle. Uh, the word simply means sent one, sent one. That's what apostle means. But there is some specifics to what this very simple word means in Scripture. And there's, there's a, we'll call it the broad understanding and a narrow understanding. With the broad understanding, um, the idea is that you could be sent on an errand or on a mission to go and accomplish something for somebody. So, um, you know, Titus had been sent to um, go to the island of Crete. And so in a very broad sense, you can speak of an apostle as somebody that was just going and being sent. Maybe um, you could think of them as a, if you're trying to find a word for them today, I'd probably say missionary, because those are the ones we send, right? Um, so that, that probably is a pretty good understanding. Uh, maybe church planter could be involved in that idea as well. And so there's a lot of people that could fall under that broad sense of what it means to be a, um, an apostle. So a couple of verses for you to write down, look up on your own. Philippians 2.25, 2 Corinthians 8.23. Philippians 2.25, 2 Corinthians 8.23. You see some examples of that broader understanding. But there's the narrower sense, which is the one that really, we, that Paul is using here. And that is a specific office that was held by a handful of men, um, maybe 15, 16 men that you could come up with. You start with, you know, the apostles, 11, you got Matthias that was added in. You probably, as you can see here, can add uh, Timothy, it gets you up to 13, probably can include Barnabas, maybe Silas. So you can, you can, but after that, it starts to get really kind of difficult to nail down who was an apostle in the narrow sense. So what is it? Why? What's the narrow sense of this? Well, it is the idea that there were certain men that were given the specific job to uh, receive revelation and pass it on to the church that the church had not had yet. They had the Old Covenant, they had the Old Testament scriptures, but they were receiving the New Testament. And many of them were writing the New Testament. And so they had a very specific role of establishing the church, receiving the New Testament um, uh, teaching. And so very narrow. We're not looking for that to be duplicated today, right? We're not looking for new revelation. Oh, you might need wisdom on the next decision that you should make in your life, and you should seek for that wisdom on what you should do. But that's different than revelation. So if you're like, well, I just need a revelation of what I'm supposed to do. Probably scratch that word, put a new one in, wisdom. I need some wisdom. And James says, if you lack wisdom, ask, and he's glad to give it to you. So we, we can expect to be, receive wisdom by God on how to make decisions and, uh, you know, in, in, in which direction to go. We can receive a call of God upon our life to a specific ministry. So all of those things are in play, but revelation, think of the Old Testament, think of the New Testament, and so we're not looking for those. Now there were two qualifications that had to be met to be an apostle. One, you had to have seen the risen Lord. And secondly, you had to have been commissioned into ministry. Now, Paul talks about how he had seen the Lord um, and it was an apostle, but one out of time. So he saw the risen Lord in a vision and in a, um, yeah, in a vision. So this is how he saw it. And of course, he was specifically commissioned into ministry. So that's the narrow sense of apostle. Um, and then you have that broad sense of apostle. Yeah, I think missionary would probably be a pretty good way to capture that idea. We don't use that though, do we? We, we don't use very often that phrase apostle. At least in our tribe, we, we don't use that. I mean, it, I mean I'm just going to be, I understand the technicalities of the word, but if you came out and said, I am an apostle, I'm going to be like, oh really? That's interesting. What do you mean by that? And I'm going to be trying to assess that. Now, I realize some people um, may be using that in that broad sense and it's perfectly fine. But let me read to you. This is from um, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And I, that is a good one to read. And, and I, I, I want to just read to you this, this paragraph where he writes about this 
idea of being a little leery of those who take on that title to themselves. This is not, you know, he's not being dogmatic. I'm not trying to be dogmatic. It's just, I think we all understand. It says, though some may use the word apostle in English today to refer to very effective church planters or evangelists, it seems inappropriate and unhelpful to do so, for it simply confuses people who read the New Testament and see the high authority that is attributed to the office of apostle. It's noteworthy that no major leader in the history of the church, and this is what I found so interesting, it is noteworthy that no major leader in the history of the church, not Athanasius or Augustine, not Luther or Calvin, Wesley or Whitfield, has taken to himself the title of apostle or let himself be called an apostle. If any in modern times wants to take the title apostle to themselves, they immediately raise the suspicion of Troy. No, he doesn't say Troy, but I'm just telling you. I, I'm like, yes. That they may be motivated by inappropriate pride and desires for self-exaltation, along with excessive ambition and a desire for much authority in the church uh, than any other person should rightfully have. So is it sinful to take the title? No, it's not. But I just think that when people do, it, it just causes like, well, where are you going with it? And let me, get, let me get a little more specific. There's a movement that is, I'm, many of you probably have heard of, and it's often referred to as just the letters NAR. It stands for the New Apostolic Reformation. You can find a lot of stuff on it, and I'm not going to get off into it, but I'm just going to tell you why I think we should be very leery when people begin to use that title. Ask questions. If they fall into the narrow sense, actually the broader sense of using it, don't fight with them. Let them use it. Fine. Go ahead. But I think we should be alert to this. And so the new apostolic reformation, a difficult thing to nail down. There's not a headquarters for it. Um, there's not like a, you know, a single group of people. It tends to be um, very Pentecostal groups that will uh, ascribe to this. And they would refer to uh, the apostles that are coming as super apostles. And they would claim that these men will have new revelation like the first apostles did. That they will eventually be able to hold mass healing services. Um, and listen, I believe God can heal. I believe God gives wisdom. I believe in all the spiritual gifts. So this is not um, a push against um, the charismata, the charismatic gifts that we read about in 1 Corinthians 12. I, I don't, I'm not angling against that. Um, but they believe that they're going to eventually hold you know, massive, uh, mass healing services um, that will lead to all kinds of people getting saved, that they will receive incredible wealth in the last days that will allow, allow them to establish God's kingdom on earth. So that's the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. So if you say, I'm an apostle, I'm going to ask you more questions. And I hope what you will do is ask other people, not immediately judge them, but you, you'll say, why is that? And that you call yourself that title. And so you have the, the narrow sense, just sent on a missionary journey, just sent on a task to get accomplished. Uh, Jesus talked about how he was sent by the Father, and as he was sent, so he what? sends us. So th this word is used in a, a broad sense in the New Testament. Um, the narrow sense, though, of that office where men receive the revelation of the New Testament scriptures and that doctrine and establish the church is not to be duplicated. And so this movement that I've just referred to, when they talk about having being super apostles and having new revelation like the first century apostles and are going to establish God's kingdom on the earth um, with the incredible wealth, all that causes me just to say, yeah, I don't think so. And, um, and just so we, we need to be careful when we hear people using um, certain titles. As we keep on reading there in the opening, the second half of verse one into verse two, we see what the mission of Paul was. So this was something we read a little bit about his character. He was, he was a bondservant. He was an apostle. What about the mission? Um, well, that he was uh, this bondservant, an apostle, according to the faith of God's elect. So Paul's ministry was to bring salvation 
um, to people, to the elect, specifically is what he refers to. So he wanted to evangelize. So he would come and he would present the gospel. Uh, and he would want to see people put faith in the Lord. Uh, if you just turn over a page maybe or so in your Bible, just to chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. So he refers to, um, again, the elect, the chosen, and how he endures all things. He would go and preach, and he was imprisoned, and he was beaten with rods, and he was chained up, and he was, you know, shipwrecked and, you know, robbed, and all these things that he endured. And so he says, listen, I am a bondservant, I'm an apostle, according to the faith of God's elect. It was Paul's mission in life to preach the gospel to all that would listen. And so he looked for every opportunity to go and to preach. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 22 uh, kind of captures that idea. It says, for though I am free from all men, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Well, what does that mean? I thought we're not supposed to do that. Well, that would mean if he was going to go to those that were under the law, he's not going to come into the house, you know, with the big old bacon cheeseburger saying, want a bite. I mean, because he realizes this is going to shut the door immediately. So those things that just would, he would just... He could push to the side. He did. Not that he was compromising the word of God. So verse 21, uh, to those who are without the law as without the law, not being without the law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And so when we read here that he has been sent as one to, uh, according to the faith of God's elect, this is the evangelism aspect of his ministry. He evangelized wherever he went. He preached the gospel. If he was in Athens, he went up to the Areopagus and he preached the gospel. Oh, I see here that you are really religious people. You even have an idol that is to the unknown God. I know that guy. I know that God that you don't know. I know him, and I want to tell you all about him. And he preached the gospel. And so this is who he was. And it is, he says, um, that, you know, to the faith of God's elect. It is through faith that men come to salvation. Do you know this verse? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. <clears throat> For by grace you've been saved. What is it? Through faith. And that not of yourselves. Faith is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So he would go and preach and call people to put their faith and trust in the Lord that he was giving them. Well, who are the elect? That's a great question. We can speak confidently of who the elect are after they put their faith in Jesus, can't we? If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, then you are part of the chosen. You're a part of the elect. Now, don't go pat yourself on the back here. Even the faith that you put in the Lord right, is his. There's none that seek after God, no, not one. You come because he, he's drawn you. And yet, we also find out that we must put our faith in the Lord. We must, as an act of our will, step into that. Jesus said, you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. Choose this day whom you'll serve. So man has a responsibility. God has a responsibility. Well, who are the chosen? I don't know. But you know how you can find out? Go preach the gospel. And as you preach the gospel, you'll plant seeds, you will see some come to faith, and we can then stand back and say, oh, look, these are the elect. You see, even though a person might be chosen and elect by God, that does not mean that, you know, don't worry about it. We still get out there and preach the gospel. We still seek to persuade men, right? We still call them to make uh, the Romans 10, 9 and 10 confession. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So people have got to make that decision. 
They have to confess the Lord as their Savior. And as they do, it becomes evident that those indeed are the elect. I do not believe, though, in what is, I know, the idea that God has chosen some to salvation and he's chosen others to eternal destruction. Because we find in um, a couple of places that this choice, this election, is according to what? The foreknowledge of God. Now, I realize this is going to upset all my Calvinist friends, and that's not why I'm doing this, is to upset you. But I do believe that the foreknowledge that God has is those who are going to come to him. And as he sees this, there's an election, there's a choosing that takes place. And there's an, an act of the will. So this idea of one of the points of Calvinism is irresistible grace. And that is that when the grace of God comes, nobody can resist it. They will, you, you're going to be saved like it or not. But I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. Because God's not willing that any should perish, and yet Jesus said, you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. So the, these verses, they tell us that there's a free will that's in, that is being acted out by man, and there's a sovereign choice of God. Can you figure it all out? I doubt it. I doubt that you can. But this is what we know, is that God elects and he chooses, that we get out there and we preach, and we seek to persuade we allow God to plead through us, be reconciled to the Lord, and we call people to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. And they need to do that. And if you're sitting here saying, well, I don't want to follow Jesus Christ. Never have, never want to, not interested. Well, then you're probably not elect. Now, if that really bothers you and troubles you, then why are you bothered and troubled by it? If the Lord is drawing you, come to him, <laughs> you know. And be a part of, of the redeemed, be a part of the elect, be a part of the, of the chosen group. And, and so this is one of those things that is a challenge for us to understand. But I think there's an important um, balance that we have in this. So we have those brothers and sisters in Christ that will only emphasize the sovereignty of God, and they will not deal with the free will of man and the choice that he needs to make. Or we can emphasize only the free will of man, and people are, you know, every day getting saved over and over again because they don't know if they're still in. Or Yeah, that's, that's nonsense. You don't need to do that. But we do need to preach the gospel. There is assurance of salvation in the Lord, and, and yet you've got to make a confession that Jesus is Lord. So, um, I really not trying to give you an explanation that solves all the problems here. Probably you're like, yeah, figure that part out. But I want you to understand that these are the, the pieces that are, that are moving around. And so if you're talking, some, sometimes people will ask me this, well, Troy, do you, believe that, do you believe in election? Do you believe that people are chosen? I'm like, do I have a choice? No pun intended here, but I mean, do, I mean I'm reading scripture that there's an elect that God has chosen. So I don't think that this is even a question that should be asked. Of course I believe in election. Of course I believe that God has chosen. What I don't believe is that God has chosen others to go and die in hell. He created them just to fuel the fire of hell. I don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. So we believe in election. We believe that people must put their faith and trust in the Lord. And um, yeah, not according to works, but it is the grace of God. So he was an evangelist. He, he, in his ministry, the mission of Paul, he was going and he was proclaiming faith um, to God's elect to come and to trust the Lord. But he also, we read there, was one that was uh, edifying. He says, and the acknowledgement, I'm still in verse one still, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. So he preached and evangelized, but he also edified. He taught the word of God so that it would produce godly living, sanctification. So he preached the word of salvation and he preached the word of sanctification. If you are one that has been redeemed, if you are the, uh, in the company of God's people, your life will be radically changed and transformed and you will see a difference. You'll see a godly life, a godly way of thinking, a godly speech, godly goals. 
And, and you will see the Lord transforming you and making you look more and more like his son, Jesus Christ, to be holy. And so those who feel like, listen, it doesn't matter, I'm saved, I'm elect, it's good, it doesn't matter how I live now because he can't get rid of me. I, I don't think you're saved. If that's how you think, if you, if you look at your life and you're like, it doesn't matter how I live, I, I really don't think you're saved. Now you can argue with me about it, but I don't think that you are. Because I can't get away with anything without being fully convicted. Can anybody agree with me on that? It's like, no, no, Lord, I actually have a right to be mad this time. No, you don't. No, I do. Let me tell you. I'm going to lay it out for you, and then you're going to see. I mean, I can't get away with any, even when I'm like, I'm right. And he says, yeah, okay, you might be right, but I've told you to love your enemies, so you're wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and I can't go five minutes. You know, it's like, Wow, that was like an outburst of anger on the road there, wasn't it? What's wrong with you? Why are you grinding so hard in your spirit over this? You know, so I mean, I think you understand. So when somebody says, oh, I'm saved, I'm a believer, I'm elect, I'm, I'm part of the redeemed, and yet I, I, I feel good about living in sin, you're not saved. Now, if you are, then, then you're going to eventually come to the conclusion that that is not right. And you will feel the conviction. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. If you're not chastened in your sin, that's a problem. People who say, I don't think I'm saved, I sinned. Well, how do you feel about it? I feel terrible. You're all right. <laughs> you're all right. Because that's the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. That's the Spirit of God yearning jealously within you to be shaped and formed in the image of the Lord. It's a person that can live in sin and it's not bothered. That's the person. So if that's your life and you are thinking, well, I've, I've thought I was a believer, but no, I mean, I'm not convicted about sin at all. Then you need to have a conversation with Jesus. Because when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of you, he's going to do a holy work of sanctification until the day you go to be with the Lord. Um, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. <laughs> so there it is. It's the grace of God that brings salvation. But guess what? What does it do? It teaches us that we should deny ungodliness and worldly lust. So we're not saved by living a good life, but once you're saved, you will live a righteous life. That's, that's what's going to happen. And when you get off, you will feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Keep on moving on about missions. Paul, uh, the mission of Paul. He evangelized, he edified and preached holiness. He also encouraged people um, in the hope of eternal life. So again, we see there in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. The Lord before the world began, had it in his heart and mind to give eternal life to you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, before the world began, he knew that you would be with him. There's, there's, there's how you deal with this you know, low self-esteem is by understanding how much God loves you. And when you understand how much God loves you and the plan that he has for you, then you'll begin to to think clearly about yourself. But self-esteem, mm, that's, that's kind of a tough one. That's a tough one. I just gotta think better about myself. Yeah, maybe. Maybe you do. We don't want you to hurt yourself. We do believe that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. But, but you've gotta come to the place where you realize that you are a, a sinner and that you're outside of the will of God and come to him. And once you do, you will now learn who you are in Christ. And as you learn who you are in Christ, um, yeah, things will click into place. But imagine this. God has chose you in eternity past that you would be with him. That's pretty amazing. It's hard to wrap your mind around this, but this is the promise that, that we have. What a glorious eternal existence that is awaiting us. To be in the presence of the Lord for all of eternity to sit on the throne with the Lord. And this is what is promised in Revelation that we would do, that we would sit on a throne with him, that we would rule and we would reign with him. 
I mean, this is, this is kind of like pinch me kind of material. Like me? I'm going to do that? If you have faith and trust in Jesus Christ, this grace is going to be manifested in a way that is unbelievable. And so he wanted to tell people how to be saved. He wanted to tell people to live a holy life. He wanted to tell people about this amazing hope. How did all of this come? Verse 3, through preaching, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching. So in eternity past, he had the idea, but in due time now, he's manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. We preach. We proclaim the word of God. It's, it's like so simple and obvious that, this, that we should be going through the word of God and studying what it has to say and applying it to our lives. If you are a minister, if you want to uh, be a faithful servant, in, whether you're teaching the children or leading a home fellowship or discipling somebody, raising people, um, your, your kids, you know, ministering to your spouse, talking to people out in the public, pastoring a church, being a missionary, you better use your Bible. You got to use your Bible. I mean, it was, I, you know, back in the 80s, mm, late 80s, um, into the 90s where, you know, some people, some church thinkers got together and they, they outsmarted themselves and they decided that nobody should ever bring a Bible to church. Don't bring a Bible to church because if you bring a Bible to church, it's going to scare off seekers. And I, I totally disagree with that. I think you get the biggest, baddest dude out of jail and if he went to church and say, and he wanted to go to church, I think he would fully expect that people are going to have Bibles at church. I'm just, I'm not as, you know, I didn't put this out into like a, a research, but I'm just thinking that people that go to church that have never been to church think you're going to have a Bible. They're not, they're not put off by a Bible. That's why they're there. They want to hear what it has to say. And so there was this thought, it was like, we, we don't need to do this and we're not going to put our doctrinal statement out there. We're not going to tell people what the Bible says and what we believe and, and we're, we're going to do everything we can to avoid what a mistake that was. We have this amazing book on our laps. We should be so quick to proclaim what it has to say. And so, hey, we understand what God thought in eternity past because we have the word. And it tells us what he thought then. He tells us what he thinks now about you, about your future, about your sin, about how to, to be a husband, about how to be a wife, about how to be a parent, how to be a child, how to be a good brother or sister, how to have an enemy, what to do with your money, what to do with your time, what you should think upon, what you shouldn't think upon. The Word of God, it gives us all of that. And so this is how God has manifested what he thinks and believes. It's through, it's through the preaching. And so we have this. What a wonderful thing. Now, I want you to look in verse 3 at the word committed. I'm, I'm in the New King James. That's what I'm reading from. In, the, in verse 3, you see the word committed. This is a Greek word, pestuo. That's where we get most commonly, that's the most common um, word for faith, to have faith or to believe, to believe. So it, depending on the context, right, is, is how it's going to be translated. It's the same in any language. So in some places, you, it will be translated to believe or have faith. But here it means um, committed. The Lord committed. He, he believed in putting the word of God in our hands. He trusted, trust us that as it places the word of God in our hands, we're going to do what we're supposed to. The proclamation of salvation has been committed to Paul, to me, and to you. You know, this faith that we have has once for all been entrusted to the saints, right? This is what we read in Jude. It's to us. This is ours. It's in our keeping. It is in our care. And we are stewards of this message. And we, like any steward, will give an account for what we have done with this message. We need to preach it. We need to proclaim it. You know, listen, there's a lot of causes out there, okay? There's a lot of causes to get involved with. And, um, you know, I, obviously I believe that God created this world. I don't believe it's something that happened because of evolution. But you know what? If you convince somebody to not believe in evolution anymore, but to believe in creation, that doesn't save them. 
Listen, it's, it's, it's a, a teaching of Scripture, but that does not save them. You could teach somebody that, that um, uh, aborting a baby is a sinful, wrong thing to do. That is a human life. But just because they come to that conclusion, that doesn't save them. So there's a lot of topics out there that we can be really, you know, passionate about. You know, feeding the poor. The Bible talks about that. And taking care of the needy. Widows and orphans. But if, if all you do is care for the physical needs of a widow and orphan, that doesn't save their soul. There's only one way in which people will get saved, and that is through the hearing of the preaching of the gospel. And we've got to do that. And we must give the word. And we, it's, it's not just the preaching of salvation, but it's, it's the preaching of all those other things I talked about a minute ago. Parenting and, and how to live a godly life. We need to give this to people. Yeah, but I don't know if people still want to hear it. Well, they didn't want to hear Jesus, remember? They killed him to silence him. They threw Peter and John in the jail to silence them. Don't preach in that name anymore. I mean, this idea that we don't want to say things that people don't want to hear, well, then we might as well just not say another word if that's, the, if that's what we're trying to avoid. But that's not what we're trying to avoid. We need to proclaim the truth. We Do it with love. Don't do it with veins popping out of your face and all angry and upset. If you can't say it, uh, uh, you know, except for like that, then go, go take a time out. You know, just like you tell your kids, go take a time out. Take a deep breath and come back to the conversation. And call people to live a godly life. So, this is in our homes, this is in the church, this is out on the streets. Verse 4 Titus was a recipient. We already read that. We saw that. We talked about him. Into verse 5, he gets into the heart, one of the, the main points here, and that is um, there's a need for elders. He says, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So there were multiple churches. We don't know how many, but in multiple places there were churches and he was to set things in order and appoint elders in these places. Um, so he is to provide structure and order to the church of Jesus Christ. You know every now and then there'll be a, a, a kind of like a wave that comes around and it's like you know we want to get away from all order and all structure and we just uh, only want to have home fellowships and anybody can talk at any time and everybody can say things and there's no structure and there's no order. Okay, those are some great Christian meetings at times but that's not the way the church is supposed to function. I'm not saying you can't have wonderful meetings and you can't, I think there's a place in fellowship for that to happen but to think that the church should not have order and structure and there should not be leaders is to just miss what the Bible says about the church that the Lord has established. I don't get to determine how the church functions and neither do you. We go to the word of God. And what we find here is that the, the church, the local church, should have order and it should have elders. It should have leaders that are doing their job. And we're going to see what that is here in just a moment. So, again, for some, it's like, well, I don't think anybody, there shouldn't be elders, there shouldn't be order. We should just, uh, all should have a, an equal say in all, everything. Yeah, I don't agree with you. I mean, I think if I go over to your house, it should be like that. I think if you come to my house, it should be like that. I think if we're just hanging out and spending time and just brothers having a cup of coffee, I think it should be like that. But the church is supposed to have order and it's supposed to have leaders. It doesn't mean it should have order to the point that there is not a freedom to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church and to adjust things and move in, you know, in accordance to that. We do need to do that. And when we don't, then we, we end up getting in ruts. And I would be in, in agreement. And I don't want to be in a rut. And so we need to be sensitive to how the Holy Spirit is leading. And certainly God can speak. Um, and we should be ready to hear that. I want to talk for just a moment. It's not really anything that is directly in the text here in front of us. But because there is to be order and because there are to be elders, I want to talk about Calvary Chapel Lynchburg for just a moment in this context. So church government is often what we, we will, the words we use. That's the order. 
part of this passage is church government, how a church structure functions. And I want to talk to you about four, one, two, four, yeah, four different structures of, of church government. And the first thing that I want to say is it's really hard to nail this down in scripture because you, you will find hints here and there. I think even Paul being you know, in the place where he sends Titus to appoint, uh, you get a little bit of structure even in that. It's not directly, you know, you know, written out like that, but all right, Paul's sending somebody. He's sending Titus. Titus gets there. He's going to correct things, and then he's going to appoint elders that can now do what he just did. So you get a little sense there. But really, what the New Testament emphasizes is the character of the leaders, that's the emphasis. Because it doesn't matter. I'm going to talk about congregational, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, and then pastor-led, elder-supported. And all of those can work as long as the people that are leading and making the decisions are walking with Jesus, are filled with the Holy Spirit, and their character is in place. You're going to have a wonderful experience. But you can, out of those four, choose the one you want. If you put somebody that decides to start, stop walking with Jesus, or a group of people that stop walking with Jesus, and now they're the ones making the decision, you've got a nightmare on your hand. So what is so important is the character of the people that are leading and making the decisions, setting the order. So congregational, this is a, a very popular uh, style of, of government um, where it allows the members of the church to make the decisions through a process of voting. And so church family meetings is often a name that comes together. Issues will be put out there and people will vote. Um, and that is a, a, a form. I'll just in my own, listen, if you, yeah, I, I see very little evidence for that in the New Testament. Um, don't, don't see that happening um, anywhere um, where that took place. I see it where the elders gathered in Acts 15 and all the elders made a decision and that's often appealed to as an example of a congregational government. The problem is it's not the congregation, it's the elders that did it. But that, that's, that's one and there are good churches that are doing the work of the Lord and um, this is how they function and it works for them. Um, and... You can evaluate that for yourself. Episcopalian, this comes from the Greek word for bishop, episkopos. So you get the Episcopalian form of government. This, is a, this church has a man that um, serves with authority over several churches. And, and you kind of get a feel for this a little bit even here, where Paul's sending these guys all over the place, right? And so that's, that's the appeal that will be made. And so in this structure, a single gifted man will make the majority of the decisions. Then there's a Presbyterian. This is an elder-led form of uh, church government. This comes from the word, Greek word, presbyteros, Presbyterian. And um, the church here is led through a plurality of men, elders, that have been raised up. They all have an equal say in all matters relating to the affairs of the church. Emphasis there to, to see um, compared to the next one is in all matters. Then the next one is the pastor-led elder supported. And this style of church government, this is where we fall here at Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. This style of church government uh, is, is that, that for me, and one day it will be a different person, uh, you know, when I get old and I'm no longer doing this. And if the Lord has not come back, it will be another person. They have the authority to set the vision of ministry um, using the giftedness of the elders to help support that vision. So I'll, I'll give some examples of this. So the pastors and the elders here have, um, well, the, the lead pastor, senior pastor, myself, and the elders, the board of elders, have equal say over finances, over doctrine, and over ethics, character, issues like that. So when we, and we'll have an elders meeting tomorrow night actually, and when we get together, we're going to look at um, the budget that we set at the beginning of the year compared with how we spent this month, 
last month. We're going to go over it. We'll have some questions. We have a, a team that's there to help answer these questions, and they'll dig into the, the finances. We're going through this. We'll, we'll talk about um, other, other matters as well. So they'll, they'll have that. If there's a any kind of indebtedness. A pastor Troy doesn't just to get to go, you know, I'm going to buy another building on Timberlake. No, I don't get to do that. Um, I don't want to do that. Um, so th those are elder decisions. I don't get to change our doctrinal statement. That's just something that we have established. I, I don't get to live however I want to, nor do any of them get to live however they want to. So there's an equal say when it comes to matters of, of character, of doctrine, and finances. And then there is more latitude that is given to me in the ministry, vision, and direction. But sometimes this, as you can imagine, they, they cross over. So I can say, you know what I want to do? I feel led to go and do, establish a missionary base and you know, spin the globe, put your finger on that place in the world. And we're going to buy some land and we're going to do all this. And we're going to send five people over. We're going to give them full-time stars. We're going to do all that. Um, I can have that. I, I have freedom for that ministry idea, but guess what? It doesn't cost a lot of money to do that, isn't it? So although I may have a vision in that ministry, and I now will come down and say, hey guys, this is what I feel like the Lord is leading us to do. Then, then we're going, I, I'm dependent upon them coming along with that idea and saying, all right, we're, we're, gonna, we're going to fund this. Now, I, I mean, if I decide I need a new book for my library, I don't have to call and ask Six guys are working full-time jobs. Can I buy this $29 book? All right, so I have, there, there's, there's spending limits in, in place. But when it gets into things like that, I mean, this is how we have to, we work together. So we have those elders that are on the board, the board of trustees, if you will, and they are making and overseeing the finances. And then all the other pastors on staff, they're also elders. They generally are not on that, that group of guys, sometimes they are, um, but not generally speaking, that's not the way it works. The, the pastors who are elders are, uh, they're on staff, and the, these other guys are, are serving as volunteers in most cases, and um, servants of the Lord, walking in their giftedness, overseeing the church, paying attention to the doctrine, paying attention to the, to the well-being. So that's um, pastor-led, elder-supported um, I, I want to address this. I don't want to address this. I don't want to address this. But I am going to address this. And I'm probably going to end right here and not go on. So if you ever go out there and you begin to look up, you know, about Calvary Chapel on the Internet, you're going to probably find something that's called the Moses model. And, the, and there's all kinds of people that will tell you about the Moses model. And um, they'll tell you what it means. They'll tell you the problems with it. And the idea is that as Moses led the congregation of Israel, God spoke to this man, gave him leadership and direction. So the Lord will speak to a pastor and, um, and he can lead the church. And so people get all up in arms about that. And Pastor Chuck is the one who introduced that idea. And so they, they're, you know, within Calvary Chapel, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, thousands of, of churches, and um, and suddenly, sometimes, Calvary Chapel pastors do stupid stuff and sin. And so, when that happens, um, immediately, all the problems that are associated with that sin and error is uh, people love to tag and say it's because of the Moses model. But you know, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, where Pastor Chuck led, um, is my home church. That's uh, that's where I. I'm ordained from that church. That's where I was first sent out as a missionary. Um, you know, that's my church. And just it so happens, um, the one thing about my experience there was there were probably two or three different occasions where I actually had to go into an elders meeting where they were making decisions. And I was like 18 years old. My job was to do the slideshow for the high school mission trip that was gonna uh, was, was gonna happen, and so they were you know they're asking if they would they would fund this. So my job was to go, but man, was it interesting to go in there as an 18 year old, and then I think as a 19 year old. So a couple of times, maybe two or three times, I went in there, and I watched how this happened. So. People who start to talk, I'm saying all this because people who start to talk about what the Moses model is, they have no idea. 
Because this is the way the meeting went, okay? We have here before us the opportunity to send some, the high school ministry over. High school ministry is asking for, I don't know, put a number on it, $20,000 to bring the band and the airfare and, and all these things that they're going to do and for the hotels and everything. Um, they've been over there before. This is what's happening. Here's the slideshow. Troy goes through the slides. And then they're like, what do you think? And, um, you know, Pastor Chuck, you know, says, you know, I make a motion that we should uh, support the work of, you know, this missions trip in 20,000. All in favor? Aye. Okay. It was voted on. But see, everybody who's sitting around saying, you know, the Calvary Chapel is all messed up with their, because of the Moses model, they probably have never even read the, the bylaws and constitution of Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, which I have read many times and went over many times. And Pastor Chuck, there is a line that said he has the authority, the pastor of the church has authority over the entire ministry of the uh, ministry vision of the church, like I described, you know, that mission venture. But he still was dependent and still had to get w voted on. And, and there's, a, there's a lot of things that, um, that people don't understand. And so they look at a guy that's gone off the rails and now they begin to want to say the whole model of Calvary Chapel is messed up. And, I'm, and so I, I bring that out because I do get asked about that from time to time. Pastor-led, elder-supported. Pastor-led means I can have a vision for, you know what, I think we should do something down at the city stadium. That was, that was you know, I mean, it could have been anybody's idea, but that, that idea, you know, was my idea. I wanted to do that. I felt led. I was like, I think we should do this. Yeah, I, I'm still clapping over it. So um, it was a great thing. And so, the, you know, the elders were like, let's go for it. Actually, I had already fit, fit within the budget that they had set for outreach in 2022. So in that case, I didn't even need to be asked because we had already voted where you have this much set aside for doing these types of, of things. We told them that we were going to use the money that was used in that way. And, and we went for it. But, you know, if I would have been the only one that was in agreement with that and staff would, didn't want to do it and the elders didn't want to do it, it would have been a really miserable effort. But you know what? Everybody was behind it. We got the wisdom, talking to people, and people ran with it. I did very little. I, it kind of felt like this. Hey, I think we should do, you know, a city stadium outreach. That's a great idea. All right. All right, turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. That's what it felt like. I didn't do anything. I just prepared my Bible study. And I got to teach it once rather than four or five times on that, on that Easter. So I, hopefully this is helpful for you to see how things are, are, are going um, and how decisions are made. Um, you know, we deal with those that, are, that get out of order. And that really kind of goes more into the qualifications and the, the job description of elders. But that's, those are the, the structures that are out there. Congregational, Episcopalian, Presbyterian. Listen. I wrote the bylaws for this church. I established, you know, the church in the beginning and how it would function. Clearly, I think that's the best way it should, be, it should function. But in saying that, my first thing I said about the different forms of government is it's the character that matters far more than the structure. I think the structure is important. Don't get me wrong. That's why I adopted what we did. But it's the character that is some. So I, I'm not grinding against congregational, Episcopalian, or Presbyterian. If you have godly people making godly decisions and the Lord is blessing, don't change it. Keep doing what you're doing. I mean, I've been over in Nepal, in the mountains of Nepal, and, and watched the tribal way in which the churches are functioning and trying to fit this in with the, the Bible. You know, um, again, it's character. It's character that matters. So... Um, Order and structure is needed in the church. Calvary Chapel Lynchburg has order. It has structure. And you know what? I just, I want to say this last thing. When we have our elder meetings, we never, we, in 27 years, we have never fought or argued. Not, not even close to a fight or argument. Well, I think, I can think of one time where somebody said, I don't think, I don't agree with that decision. But if all of you are doing that, I'll go along with it. I'm like, all right. So we, we went along with it. That's, you know, the decision. And then later on, that brother came back and said, you know what? I'm so glad you guys didn't listen to me. That was absolutely the right decision. That, that's like the big controversy we've ever had. If you, and that's not a controversy. Um, and, and that's how we function. We pray. We, we, we seek the Lord. We, sometimes it's three or four months where we're considering different options and opportunities and direction. Or, 
I love, I actually look forward to our elder meetings. I don't know there's a lot of pastors that can say that. I look forward to them because I love these men. They're friends. It's going to be edifying. The Lord's speaking to them. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing that the Lord has blessed us with. And um, you should, we should thank the Lord for it. You should pray for unity among the leadership, um, that it would continue. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's a little kind of hopefully window behind the scenes of Calvary Chapel Lynchburg. You can look on the, um, online. You can see who all the elders are here um, and who's on staff, of course, if you go and so that, that's Calvary Chapel Lynchburg's order. That's our structure. That's how our elders function here. And um, I'm very blessed to have a group of men, and you are too, to have a group of men and with the wives that support them. And um, they're just all great guys that you can follow and model your life after. And they're watching out for you. And they're protecting you. And they're mindful of what's coming in. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get it. These, uh, well, we didn't get very far. But I like, I like what we just did. Hopefully that's helpful in your understanding. Father, thank you that you have given us understanding of, through the scriptures of the kind of church we're to be. And um, Lord, I am thankful after 27 years of the unity and the peace, the love that has been among the group of elders I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just continue to do that even tomorrow as we meet and gather, as we do each month, that you will give us wisdom and knowledge and understanding to make decisions that are for your glory and honor. Lord, I pray that, um, that all of us would, um, would, would serve in the area that you've called us. Some are elders, some are leaders, some are serving as teachers and, and um, servants that, that help and support and have gifts of mercy and Lord, all of us need to find our place and we ask that we would be a, a church that's quick to use our gifts to give ourselves away as, as those bond servants that uh, serving at the will and the, dis the decision, discretion of you, Lord Jesus. And so we commit these things to you in your name, amen.